Buddies. The new beginning. Podcast. My name is Sean Ram, alongside Joshua Black. Hi, everyone. Thanks for uh, listening in again. Absolutely, and we're here with Feroz Alam, who is the founder and president of We Foundation Bangladesh, www.wefoundationbd.org, that provides education to 400 underprivileged children of Bangladesh. Feroz currently lives in St. Catharines, Ontario, studying social justice and equity studies at Brock University. Great. So let's let's get into it. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you start this? What, what was your vision? A vision of starting the foundation? Yes. Um, so I come from the northern part of Bangladesh, uh, the most you know, impoverished you know, area of Bangladesh. So the family that I was born, that I grew up, uh, you know, we were very, very impoverished. And also how I grew up, you know, starvation and you know, like going to bed hungry was just part of you know, everyday life that you know, I grew up with. So, and then later, the difference, you know, we're 11 siblings, seven brothers and four sisters. So, um, what was different uh, about me from childhood is that I wasn't a very strong boy. I was always the one who would be left with books and like in the corner. So I found my way out of my village through education. So uh, I left uh, my village, you know, for doing uh, college, and uh, my life changed. You know, I took a job in most expensive schools, you know, as a, a high school economics teacher. So, um, but. What happened later in my life when I saw that, you know, when I was, you know, working as an economics teacher for the most privileged, you know, um, teenagers, I realized the contrast, the difference, you know, that, you know, how privileged they are and, you know, how the children that I come from, I was one of those street kids, right, you know, how underprivileged they are. So that made me very, very passionate. And also the disconnect, that disturbing disconnect that my students that I was teaching in high school, they'd be like, you know, 18, 19 years old, but they have no idea about their own backyard, about their own privileges and that complete disconnect. So I wanted to do something for the community that I come from, for the village that I come from. Um, so that's how I started. <laughs> Excellent. And what you're doing in school right now mm-hmm. is um, you're doing your master's, is that correct? Uh, exactly. Okay. And what is your master's in? My master's in social justice and equity studies. Oh, so right along with yeah. uh, this your passions. <laughs> exactly. So I want to like talk a little about like, because like in, in my own culture, my own world, I don't really, I mean, you see some homeless people here and there, but I'm thinking in Bangladesh, it's a total different mm-hmm. space and different sort of um, environment of the reality of being hungry and mm-hmm. being and what poverty is. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a little about um, what that actually is for, I think, for people that around here that maybe aren't aware? Um, absolutely, you know, and I, I really, you know, <laughs> love to answer that question because, like, how context, you know, so important. Um, to talk about it, you know, just to put things into perspective, Bangladesh is the size of the state of Iowa with 168 million people. So, uh, and also it is a country with um, some of the, you know, uh, circumstances, you know, what is not of their doing, but they're, the, you know, a suffering, they're the sufferer, you know, of that. Now, right now in Bangladesh, we have 21 million climate refugees. Like because of global warming, what's happening because of massive industrialization, because of its, you know, it's the largest delta and low-lying country. Okay. So the seawater is rising and people are losing their homes. By 2020, we will have 30 million climate refugees. Wow. So there's a huge number of people who come from the, you know, these areas to the capital cities such as bread and butter. So that's one of the, you know, uh, one of the uh, um, background, one of the information. The other one is that Bangladesh is the second largest clothing exporting country in the world. By 2020, you're supposed to exceed China in clothing export, exporting. So, yes. So that makes Bangladesh like, you know, whenever I work here as a TA, and if my students ask me where am I from, usually I joke about it is that, you know, the chances that, you know, the shirt that you're wearing, if you just see the tag, it's probably made in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Um, so. We pretty much clothe the world, but we are one of the most marginalized communities in the world. Like right now, there are 5 million clothing factory workers. So um, when I was doing my master's in development studies in Bangladesh, so I did my research, you know, in the areas that basically what's happening. So there's a huge number of people who come from the rural areas to the capital city. And just to give you um, the population density in the capital city of Bangladesh, Dhaka, in one square kilometer, you have, you have a population of 144,000. So this makes the most densely populated place on earth. And I live there. So my experience is so unique. It's 
probably, I don't think, you know, although I did my master's in development studies, but, you know, what I learned from text, from theories has very little, you know, in comparison to what, you know, I learned working as, you know, um, a social activist or whatever you say. Um, so, and also what probably is not mentioned here, you know, while I was working as a high school economics teacher, I took on the responsibility of the director of education of a huge project that was funded by Emirates Airlines. So it had 700 children, you know, slum children and marginal children of the Dhaka city, and I was the director of the project. You know, project. So working there was also a tremendously rich vignette to understand what is marginalization, what happens to their life on a regular basis. So I became very passionate about it, and you know, that's why I decided to pursue my you know studies, my uh, activism in the uh, path of social justice. Okay, so, um, wow, and so I'd like to know, like, it's, in Canada, you don't have that many people, right? Like, in the sense of in, a, in that block that you're mm -hmm. saying, so I can't even understand or rationalize what that would even be like. Um, like, the best way is like a club where everyone's just like squished in together, but like, it's not, you know, like, people are all suffering, yeah, right? Yeah, stimulation, like, right? Yeah. Um, my family's from Northern Punjab. Yeah. So, uh, Kaminian. Mm -hmm. So, going, I've been back a few times and mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, I, I always tell people it's a love hate thing. Mm -hmm. You hate to see the poverty, you hate to see the pollution, but there's so much beauty in the country as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what it is. You're immediately bombarded with stimulation. You, mm -hmm. you smell the air, you see different things, you mm -hmm. see children with limbs mm -hmm. you know, missing, you mm -hmm. see poverty, you see you know, animals, you mm -hmm. see puppies being born in alleyways. Like mm -hmm. it's incredible, smell sights, mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. And it's also, now that you know, it's my second year in Canada, my senses are very heightened now that how people from global north, global, global north they explain the global south, places like Bangladesh and India, in such simplistic Eurocentric pattern that as if what is happening in Bangladesh is a unique incident, which is the doing of the people. Like my research is actually into colonial education, is that how we are the product of 200 years of British colonialism, how the loot from the place where I'm from is actually the source of financing the industrial revolution in you know, in, in Britain, like, you know, in 1757, when the first, like, you know, the Bengal was defeated by, you know, Lord Clive, you know, I studied in my research, I found out that Lord Clive sent 150 ships filled with gold and silver that funded the Industrial Revolution in England. But now, after that entire historical cost, and, you, know, you know, construction, now, you know, when you have a conversation with somebody here in Canada or somebody in Global North, and they attribute the poverty and the suffering, you know, as if like it is a, you know, they're doing, that makes me a little sad. And also that how incredibly, you know, their understanding is boxed and limited, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. But, but this is what I often say, that you are not separated. Yeah. The wealth that you have in Canada, if you are living in cozy and comfortable house in Canada, if you're wearing comfortable clothes, is because somebody is not wearing it. So in 2013, the Canadian clothing factory, like, you know, the clothing line, you know, Joe Fresh, was producing clothes in Bangladesh. In 2013, 24th April, in 19th second, the factory collapsed and more than 1,300 workers, mostly women and children, lost their lives. What's the contribution to their life? It's just so that our, our separation is an illusion. We are living in a hyper-globalized world. And Bangladesh, I would say, you know, makes a major contribution to the lives of people and the comfort all over the world, but little do they get the recognition. Yeah, it's like you said, it's um, the discourse has been provided by the privileged mm -hmm. to look back and see how the world was shaped. Mm -hmm. But those are the ones, those were the major players mm -hmm. dictating how the world was shaped. Exactly. You know, um, Britain gave independence to a lot of countries a lot sooner than they did with India and Bangladesh and some of these countries that we're still getting resources from oh, yeah. extracting. Yeah. And uh, like you said, there's a disconnect. Mm -hmm. We're sitting here, I'm not associated with the person who made my clothing. Mm -hmm. you know, and they're, it's a whole different world over mm -hmm. there. And, mm -hmm. and that's where we need to, mm -hmm. like you said, we're globalized now. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse. Look, we all know what's going on. Exactly, exactly. And personally, I go through a lot of grief. You know, uh, I often will break down and you know, in classes sometimes the emotional surge is so strong, I just cannot stop. I cannot stop. Like, a few days back, and you know, I went to a conference, um, and one of the professors, you know, from Brock University, she was talking about the experience, you know, what, what happens, you know, what, hap 
sort of violence was inflicted through colonialism. So I, as not only uh, you know as a student you know in sociology in, in that area, you know, as, what I was feeling, you know, inside, I was feeling that the place that I come from, my ancestors, like you know, 10 million people died because of a systematically inflicted famine, and I feel that intense sadness, that that grief, and so. I was going through this experience then when I was feeling that I, I just decided to maintain an eye contact with the professor, not to make her feel uncomfortable, but to rather celebrate, rather let me be that the pain that I'm going through, the historic, I mean, people who died, I don't know them, but I felt that intense connection with them. It's resonating throughout yeah, history, right? Exactly. Reverberating. Yeah. Holocaust, we still talk about the Holocaust, we still yeah. feel upset about that. Yeah. Now, again, the discourse has been centered around Western societies, which is why we continue to talk about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. But there's been lots of deaths and murders mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. famines, yeah. like yeah. you said. And I don't think, like, because the Holocaust was, um, I guess, like, way back when, like, the, uh, the children now being born aren't understanding what that even means. So mm -hmm. they can't really sit with that. But if you're in the Holocaust, if you're witnessing death and poverty, well, it stays with you. Mm -hmm. And so you have those memories, you have those feelings as you move forward in life. And I think that's why um, me personally, right? Like the Bangladesh story of making the clothes. I'm like, I never even considered in my mind like where it was going. I go to the, the, the store, I'm like, oh, how much is it, right? Like, oh, it's the, how it's designed. But you're forgetting who makes it and how that's even possible mm -hmm. to get it at whatever price. Mm -hmm. It's based on labels and stuff. But at the end of the day, mm -hmm. everyone's shaving their costs down. And like, so how are they doing that? And we forget to ask those important questions. I think mm -hmm. you brought that brought that up, mm -hmm. how it's being made in Bangladesh. And I'm guessing they're not getting paid fairly. Is that, is, would that be fair to say? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in my research, and it's like very well documented, the cloth the clothes items that come from Bangladesh, the profit margin goes from 150% to 5,600%. I mean, so, so any item, imagine any item that comes from Bangladesh, at the max that could have, whatever the item you say, you buy it for $6,000 or whatever, it couldn't have possibly cost more than $6 in Bangladesh. But when it comes to Europe, when it comes to North America, when it is sold, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. I mean, you couldn't, this is also interesting is that you go to Bangladesh, I mean, also like, you know, where, I, where we work, it's the mecca of, you know, clothing industry, the garment industry, right? You couldn't find any clothing line that you can't find the factory there. Be it the most expensive brand, you have it there. Because obviously the worker's right is so violated because like, you know, why is it in Bangladesh? Because the labor is cheap and, you know, I mean, there isn't anybody who can speak for the rights of laborers, right? So, and also what also makes me intensely sad and, and hurtful because you see, I will tell you one incident. I'll, I'll just jump in on it right now is that, so when I was doing my high school, I was in, in the 12th grade and I, the, the place where I used to live and I used to live with this um, family, she's a clothing factory worker. And one day I came from school and I saw her that you know, she was crying. And, like, and, and the person that, you know, my, in our culture, we don't call somebody by name. Everybody is relational. You call somebody with a relation. But I asked her sister what happened. And she told me that she went to work and then she had cramp. And the manager, you know, she, he came and he kept on kicking her in the abdomen because why she has cramp. I personally have witnessed incidents. Uh, one of the incidents that I remember is um, um, this um, uh, worker, this uh, clothing factory worker, his mother is in deathbed. And he's asking his manager that, I need to go to my mother to see, you know, she's, she's, she's in, in deathbed. And the manager doesn't, you know, let him go. But he said, okay, if you don't let me go, it's fine. You know, I quit, I'm, but I'm gonna go and see my mother. But you see, if one worker goes, that sends a symbol, signal that okay, he can revolt. That person, that worker was beat up so badly. And not only that, also that systematic humiliation. After beating him up, he was put into that kennel where the dog is there, right? For the display of other workers that you disobey, you see what happens. So it's all systematic. It's all systematic. Like, Right before 2013, you know, 24th April, just a month or two ago, more than 100 workers were burnt alive in factories, and the workers were not allowed to come out because the doors are like locked. It's locked. It's caged. Oh. So, and it's again that 
how will we feel grief or sadness? Because we have, we live in a society where everything is reduced to a number, a digit, that intense disconnection. We do not know what's happening, right? And, and also, sometimes I feel like, you know, it's that cognitive dissonance that I don't want to know what's happening, right? But I think that's also a responsibility that's like, you know, using something for my own comfort, right? Um, everything is like standardized, right? Everything is just digit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's how you see it, right? Like, you, you're trained, but like, to hear those stories of the people being burned alive, and that was because it's law. Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're trapped, and they're being forced to work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different sort of understanding than not just like they're getting paid less, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they're actually being abused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one of the graduates from my department, uh, she went to Bangladesh after the collapse of you know, a clothing factory and she made a documentary called Made in Bangladesh. And the document did really well, it you know, won Emmy Award and all that. So in that documentary, it shows the live footage that when the clothing factory collapsed, there is a man who is trapped there and this huge like you know iron bar went through like through his ribs and through his inside and even in that circumstance he's saying in bangla and i understand bangla and that's like you know some of the things that i know why i think that experience is that he's saying is that i want to live and then hear this piece he says i want to live because i want to provide for my parents i want to provide for my family even at the last moment of his life he doesn't want to give up. He wants to live not for himself. And then we live in a Western country and we have supposed education degree whatsoever. And then we assume this persona that we are so superior from them is that this is just clothing factory workers. What do they know? You know, it, it's come back full circle. It's back to slavery. It's yeah. modern slavery. It's, yeah. it's What's saddening is that Western companies who, if that happens, yeah, that's impossible to happen in a Western nation. Mm-hmm. You have to have standards in place. Businesses mm-hmm. have standards. You have fire codes. There's a million different things companies mm-hmm. have to go through to mm-hmm. make sure their employees are safe. Mm-hmm. Yet those companies are saying, well, let's go to Bangladesh. Where, mm-hmm. You know what? They don't have as many rules. Mm-hmm. You know, we can just, just uh, discard the pollution easier. Mm-hmm. The government will help us out. Mm-hmm. We'll give subsidies. Mm-hmm. And, and But that's, how is that allowed? That's mm-hmm. incredible. Mm-hmm. And... A few days back, you know, I was having a conversation with, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a vegetarian, you know, uh, so um, I was having this conversation with this person who's like, so why are you a vegetarian? That's the point. Uh, I told that person uh, statistics that every single day in the country that I come from, 50 children every single day drown to death because of the water level rising. Is it their fault? And when I know as a person and in my research that 53% of the global warming, the greenhouse gas, comes from the global livestock industry. I'm not trying to preach here any sort of, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very critical of, you know, you know, white-led dominated, you know, white-dominated vegan movement, you know, who don't understand, like, you know, so, but at the same time, it's the connection that I don't want a child to lose her, his life because of somebody's consumption. Do you know what I mean? So and it's like your own consumption. Yeah, right. Exactly. And that's already you're taking on yeah. almost like a personal journey to do mm-hmm. as much as you can to reduce the harm of others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to actually jump back to your story where mm-hmm. the individual um, had the uh, the pole or mm-hmm. whatever in his ribcage mm-hmm. and saying he wants to live mm-hmm. for other um, his his parents, mm-hmm. right, to supply mm-hmm. for them. And you know, it touched my heart, and I think there's. We, we lose that in our culture, like mm-hmm. fighting for the ones you love. Mm-hmm. And you, that's what it is, like this, this sense desire to mm-hmm. provide and help those mm-hmm. that helped you along the way. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. now it's like very independent, you just want from your parents or you want from other people and mm-hmm. you don't want to give back. Mm-hmm. And whatever reason, like for the, the nation to be so so poor, mm-hmm. they have something I think that our culture doesn't have. Oh yeah, it's just like since it may be compassion, if you want to speak on that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so what? I mean, probably I'll just you know um, probably you know back it up with this. So how the Marxist interpretation that and in how the capitalism what it does it takes down the emotional veil of relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, every relation turns into mono relation, right? I think in West the dominance of capitalism has you know invaded the psyche of individuals. I know their relationship is coded only in terms of monetary and material uh, 
exchange. But yet in places like Bangladesh, in places like, you know, uh, that has not, it has been, you know, invaded by capitalism, but it has not, it completely been overtaken. It's just the fact that this, you know, familial piety, that your responsibility, your duty, I mean, it's also, it has to do with um, the belief system, right? Like, for example, if you look at the Western belief system, you know, talking about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, you know, the monotheistic religion, is that how we conduct ourselves, what's our relationship with us and people around us. But as opposed to that, if you look at the Oriental religion, let's say Confucianism, Hinduism, and Buddhism, you see that how you are part of the nature, how you are in, integrated to, you know, where you are, you know, how your existence is not, you are not the center of your experience, right? So, so that's, that's fundamentally different, that the belief system is different, right? So how, you know, obviously, again, that comes to the history of, you know, the civilizing mission, that how people from the, you know, Europe felt that you know, we need to go and civilize all those yes. heathens, right? Because they worship water and like, you know, sun and tree and mountains, but at least they were not destroying those resources that were sustaining them, right? Um, but then they came with that civilizing mission, that, that responsibility, the white man's burden, right? Um, so I think, although Bangladesh is a Muslim dominated country, because, you know, the Arab colonialism, right? You know, the, the Arabs came to uh, the, in, the Indian part of the world and, you know, started converting. So what happened that although it's a Muslim dominated country, the culture of care, the culture of compassion, the culture of... One of the things that I struggle tremendously till today, I do, is coming to the country like, coming to country like Canada, the idea of private space, the hyper-individualistic society. Like, for instance, I grew up with 11 siblings. I didn't have a room to myself. So if my mother had one fruit, let's say a mango or apple, she had to slice it to 12, 11 different pieces. And each piece would taste divine. Mm. But here you have a lot, but you don't. I mean, when I came here in the first few days, when I cooked, one of the days I remember the vivid memories that I sat down with food and I just broke down because I am not used to eating all by myself. Mm. So this is so different, right? So it's culturally, and it's also so difficult for Canadians to understand what, what does it mean? Like when I'm with my family members or friends and my family members or friends are eating, you know, Sean would probably, you know, can relate to that. If I take something from my friend's plate, I'm not gonna ask permission. <laughs> That's the idea of sharing. That's what it is. Like, you know, we hug, we, you know, we are very um, emotionally bonded, which is very different. And I think that links with uh, the mindfulness mm -hmm. uh, aspect of you're sitting down, you know, there's not five people with phones, mm -hmm. you know, and because the food isn't in large quantities, mm -hmm. you enjoy it more, you taste it more, the mm -hmm. cooking is different. Yeah, um, and sometimes we're here in the Western world with uh, a lot of times, not only distractions, but choice paralysis. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many choices. There's so mm -hmm. much going on. Yeah. You know, I can I can eat mangoes every day if I wanted to. Yeah. Well, then I don't enjoy it as much. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that sort of goes down to uh, being grateful, mm -hmm. you know, and um, more time to mindfulness is just realizing that I eat out of sort of a rush to do other things. I don't mm -hmm. actually savor it. I'm mm -hmm. not grateful for the food that I'm eating. But in a so in Bangladesh, you'd be grateful for that apple slice, mm -hmm. right? Like, and so it's a different feeling, a different level of gratitude mm -hmm. because it's sort of the, the basics mm -hmm. that we, I think, really take for granted because I think there's a lot lost in the mm -hmm. sense of who we see ourselves and the stress mm -hmm. um, and the, I guess, you know, as we move forward in life, what we can't achieve. Mm -hmm. I think maybe a sense of love that mm -hmm. um, I think maybe like some of the uh, individuals who are more grateful for the food and their the relationships and their bonds mm -hmm. may have. I, I would like to share two stories. Uh, I personally find the most meaningful stories because you know, that's a personal, that's easy to understand. So this summer, I mean, last summer when I went to Bangladesh and as I said, and I worked with marginalized kids. So this little girl, probably seven, eight years old, you know, she comes, you know, and on her way to school, um, she found a mango, like a mango, like dirty in dust and all that. And again, as I mentioned that in our culture, we address people by relation. So I'm, I'm telling her that mom, that mango is dirty. So she came and she gave me that mango, that little girl. And when she gave me the mango, I looked at it and I said, it's totally like with mud and dirt and everything. And she's like, and she took the mango back and she ran to nearby swamp where the water is even dirtier. And she's washing that mango and she, you know, rubbed it, you know, with her like torn dress and, uh, and she gives it to me. 
and it touched me so deep is that it's not what you give, it's what you give off you. Mm-hmm. I can I, I cannot fathom that what's what's going on in that seven-year-old girl's mind that she found that ability to give. And I come from the area where in 2007, an eight-year-old girl, she committed suicide. Again, why? Because they were starving for three days. And when just a piece of bread was found, the mother gave the bread to the son, not to the girl, obviously, as we live in a man-dominated world, patriarchal world. Uh, she couldn't bear with the you know, insult. She committed suicide, eight-year-old girl. So that's two. And the third story that I want to share, I mean, so I was working in my office and all of a sudden, you know, I, I got this news that, you know, one of our girl's father has died. So this girl's father already had an amputated leg and her, her mother is chronically ill and a clothing fa- used to work in, in a clothing factory but now cannot work. And I go to see that. And the girl sees me and she comes running to me and the first thing she's told me and I will not, I cannot, it's, I'm in a full of forgetting. She told me that who's going to feed me now? Her father's dead body is lying there. Now here, for a Western person, not to understand the cultural context, she had no shortage of love for her parents. The, filial, the, the familial piety, the, the amount of contribution the children do, the siblings do for the siblings, for the family, for the community, is inconceivable for people in the West. But that gave it that jarring understanding that what does it mean to be so marginalized, so vulnerable, right? So how her own subjectivity is like presented through her immediate concern of food, right? So it's it's complex. It's it's far from linear. Yeah, and that's just relates back to the, I guess the you would know better than me the Mas- Maslow's hierarchy of needs, just mm-hmm. hunger, shelter. Mm-hmm. Probably not saying it right. Safety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we don't all, we don't yeah. have that idea. I don't have that idea. I don't mm-hmm. deal with those. I'm hungry. I eat. I eat. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's it. But I think that the, the, the I think the goal or the way I see life is to uh, reach the state of of love and be able to to see others for who they are and, and to sit with their suffering. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, we have a hard time doing that. And saving the grief uh, movement and even dying. It's mm-hmm. still just a push just to even talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. but it's happening all the time over there. Mm-hmm. And just as sort of when you, because it's not even just about the food, right? Like mm-hmm. if it was just about the food, well, you feed them, but it's not. And say like it's about the child still have love. So you didn't need food to have love. Mm-hmm. Love comes before shelter, food, anything. There, there's something in us that can still become, I think, a great beacon of hope for mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. even though you can't eat and you don't have a lot of food. Mm-hmm. And for her to just sort of give you that mango, mm-hmm. you're just like, how, how is that possible, right? Like, mm-hmm. wouldn't you take it for yourself? Mm-hmm. And, but there's mm-hmm. something else that's cultivated mm-hmm. in that environment. And I said, at the end of the day, I don't know secrets of that mm-hmm. uh, and what it could be. And I'm still trying to learn that for myself to be able to give so selfishly. Mm-hmm. Um, like that, that child thing, mm-hmm. right? And I'm guessing mm-hmm. other people, even parents would do, right? Mm-hmm. To have that bread, they might give the majority of it mm-hmm. away. You sort of see, what was that movie? Uh, Cinderella Man, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense that he was very poor and he gave his food over to his family. He didn't eat anything. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of parents would probably do that mm-hmm. if they found food or they got food mm-hmm. or they work for their kids. Or mm-hmm. And like, he was like, wow, you know, like, and what that does, what that means. They said like, it's, it's not who you, not what you do but it's almost like who you are mm-hmm. you know and so i always like to say and when it comes to language mm-hmm. i say it's not about the words you speak it's mm-hmm. about the spaces between them mm-hmm. and what that's saying is the sense that what's your meaning behind that where is it coming from it's coming from your heart or is it mm-hmm. coming from your ego mm-hmm. in the sense of um what's your meaning mm-hmm. and and so your big thing is literacy mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so what is it about literacy that's important mm-hmm. right um and how can it help if not um, um uh I, I have been an educator for over a decade, you know, uh, and so I had two, uh, I, I, I had two lives. <laughs> in one life, I had to work in a very um, expensive British private school where I would teach the just kids of the country. And the other life that I had, I would work with the most marginalized kids, you know, on the street and uh, running as a director, uh, running the project as a director. So things that I have learned is that how literacy over the course of time that I've realized, how literacy is terribly, awfully misunderstood. How literacy has come down to 
you know, our focus on decoding prints. Literacy, on the other hand, is not reading the word. It's in you know, Paulo Freire, you know, the great Marxist Brazilian, you know, uh, education. He said, he argues that literacy is not about reading the word, but reading the world, right? Can you read the world? And when it's a literacy, I would again quote, you know, uh, can, you, can you explain that a little more? So, for example, every day we are reading the world. For instance, when you are, um, when I when I see uh, Sean and you, what does it, what do you represent to me? I need to understand that Sean is Indian, you know, he's a brown man and you're a white man. So you two are two different symbols, although there is no text, but I need to make some meaning of that, right? You know, so we are constantly reading. I mean, so reading the world, like, you know, when you are driving a car, you see lights, you know, those colors, they are reading, right? So um, Jacques Derrida has a famous you know, quote that says, you know, everything is text. Everything is text. Nothing is beyond the text, right? So, you know, text is not, so, so this is what my understanding is how the literacy has come down into this so narrow, you know, practice of decoding print. But in a sense, literacy is much bigger than that. Literacy is a practice. Everything and anything that you do is a literacy. Like right now, I'm sitting in front of, you know, this in a microphone, I'm talking to literacy, like, you know, as you have, you know, healthy understanding that what is, what, what do I need to do? Literacy is something that we do. It is not essentially what we actually decode the print, right? Yeah. So literacy is everywhere. So what I'm trying, let's say, think, I'll give you this example. In Bangladesh, people who are losing their home because of, you know, global warming, the sea level, you know, is rising and et cetera. But you know what is very sad that that makes me so, so sad. These people sincerely believe what they are suffering is because of their sins. So do they understand that, you know, the global warming is causing them the suffering? Instead, there, and so this phenomena, right? So literacy for me is like critical understanding of who you are to start from why do you think the way do you think? Why your life situation is as it is? Grief understanding, dream is literacy. Like, you know, understanding my place in world. Why do I feel sad? Why do I dream? Try to make a meaning of that. But we live in a world where we are taught anything but to understand our subjectivity, but to understand why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I think the way I think? Why am I going to this? And also, Speaking of language, you mentioned that how language could be very limited, to be very, very, very honest. Like, you know, as you have mentioned, that it's not essentially what you say, it's essentially, you know, what's the space in between, right? Mm -hmm. So that liminality, that liminal spaces between the words, and right? You see, language are essentially a symbol, right? That talks of something, but language itself cannot explain it, right? It can, true, yeah. yeah. So, uh, like, you know, how linguists or, you know, probably postmodernists, and they would say that language is a system of difference. To understand that who I am, I need to know that I'm not Sean, I'm not Joshua, right? So it's a system of difference to understand. So to be something, I need to know what it is not. So that's one interpretation of language, right? Yeah. But at the same time, we need to be open to be able to address. But you see, language is also extremely socially normed practice. Any concept that you think about is essentially socially coded. So grief or sadness or dream, to what extent do we understand it? Can we actually understand it through the social norms? Through what is believed about dream? What is believed about grief? Or we can get into an open conversation to try to understand, okay, what is it? Yeah, I was, um, I was going to say that along those lines of literacy, it's breaking then the barriers and kind of cages and traps that maybe masters have set up mm -hmm. in Bangladesh yeah. is that maybe the British came in and they had their puppets, whatnot, mm -hmm. that they were keeping the people in check and all that. And mm -hmm. it's just like seeing a child from that area and saying, you know, there are possibilities, mm -hmm. you know, that there's a world here. The mm -hmm. system is built like this for one way, but it's not concrete, mm -hmm. you know, allowing women to go out and be educated and, and do this and do that, do things that boys are allowed to do. That's a mind frame. It's a literacy thing. It's like, 
Is that even possible? It is possible. It is possible. So here's what, think about the world that is dominating, right? Think about if I would have spoken to you in probably one of the languages in India, that's a Tamil language, you probably don't understand because that is a code that you and I do not share. Lee. So capitalism as a system, it spreads through the world through a set of codes. Now, in between the codes, there are spaces, which is liminal, which has not yet been invaded, has not yet been taken over by the norms, right? So it is possible when we understand, in order to defy code, you have to understand code really well. So- That's very true, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, if I know that what's the inner working, why do I feel the way I feel? What is literacy? What is it doing? Then probably I'll know that, you know, for example, my research area is linguistic imperialism, that why in Bangladesh or in many of the worlds, like for example, I look into the Hal Cambridge University, Till today, we talk about the master has left. No, far from it. Cambridge University operates school system curriculum in 170 countries out of 196 countries. So I come from a country where we have a rich history of who we are, but in high school, our students do not have any ways of learning our own history, our own culture, and even our own language. And when a language dies, it dies the culture, the history, who we are. So. Literacy is not knowing how to speak in English. Educated, I do not know if you know if you have that reference, and because it's very difficult to have this reference here. The moment you speak English, you are the most educated person. Far from it. How language can be so deceptive. Yeah, really quickly on that note. So I went to India since 2004, and I'm talking to my cousins, and I'm meeting my cousins, and they have like. English textbooks, biology, grade 11 biology, you know, whatever it is, math, they're all English. But you can't have fluid conversations. Yeah, absolutely You can't say, hey man, how's it going? What's going on? What are you going to eat today? I have to speak Punjabi Mm -hmm. and I can throw English phrases and stuff like that. But that just relates to, they don't have the complete literacy. So so when people say, well, India has a whatever, I don't even know the number, 7% literacy rate. Mm Yeah, exactly. And also how language, think about the ecology, right? For example, think about English. English is not a language of India. So the social practice is in Punjabi, right? But then imagine how difficult it is. Their consciousness is overridden. You are imposing a consciousness on the existing consciousness, which is not compatible. If you bring a plant or animal from another ecology to bring it here, it will not survive. So when language from another ecology is placed onto them, they cannot. So how will those youngsters will learn even, so to speak, biology or physics properly when the understanding is alien itself? Do you know what I mean? Your language isn't good enough to succeed in life. Sorry, you're going to have to learn English oh, as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean uh, there's a project in Bangladesh called English in Action. So in my research, I found that this, this woman, you know, she's giving a statement that I don't understand a word that my daughter, you know, says when she recites poem but I'm so happy that she is. So how the English language is equated as a sign of progress, the sign of development. So the colonialism is not essentially the practice, but then it's invading inside the space, right? Whereas, just finishing that thought, where it should be, where it's like Quebec. Yeah. You know, it's French's value, French mm-hmm. is appreciated. Mm-hmm. They also can speak English, but it's not less. Yeah. Wow. And so how do you go about teaching children? So this is a literacy. Like, what is like you found the organization? So mm-hmm. we have your goal, but how do you go about teaching children? So what we do, we have three levels of literacy practices, tier one, tier two, tier three. So in the beginning, what we do, because it's a system of, you know, I mean, the world of code, right? So we have the formal life and literacy where the kids go through the same system, you know, so that they can earn a certificate. Okay. That's tier one. Tier two is that we help them to build some sort of skills which is needed for their work. Let's say how to use a computer or like, you know, how to, so something technical, something that they need to go on. But the third level, and which is the most important level, is that we call it critical thinking literacy. So we do a project like, let's say, we're working with kids and like, okay, we will write a play. An issue that affects you, affects our village, affects our community, and sit down together and like try to write about it. Write a poem about it. And so that when they think about their own issue, like let's say child marriage is a huge issue 
in the context, I don't know, the culture that I come from. Like one of the girls in our schools, and she has been coming to school for nine years, she got forced to be married at the age of 14. But she was forced to get married, not that she was, it was a choice. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that. So that's critical literacy. That's like pushing the limit where the children will be encouraged to think that, okay, what's going on? I mean, why are we so poor? Why the clothing factories all are in Bangladesh? Why the water level is rising? Why we're becoming climate refugees, right? But, but by the way, that's very political and you got to be very careful that how you navigate through it because as anywhere else, when the power structure realizes that you're doing something that can threaten the power, the power will come down at you. Yeah, it's right? true. And yeah. it's very true, but it's nice how you, you understand that. And, and it's like with code, you have to understand the rules and the work basically with those rules to, to sort of um, yeah. to break them in a sense, right? So you gotta know the rules well enough to be able to use it against them. Yeah. And that's sort of, I guess, what you're doing. So it's amazing that you're doing that. And, and have you seen a lot of progress just very shortly in the sense of kids? I would say that we are faced with, I mean, we have seen progress, like, you know, I, I can say happily, but, you know, like learning English and computer, now they're working in Emirates Airlines, earning $1,500 a month. So I have seen, enormous change in their lives in terms of materialistic changes, right? But at the same time, I have seen that how the literacy that we practice has filled them with self-hatred. Because the project that I'm talking about is funded by Emirates Airlines. We have a lot of Western volunteers. We had the project that I used to you know, be the director, director of the project. We had a lot of Western volunteers who come and work. So immediately, they would see for a brief period of time, you know, those, um, um, Western uh, you know, visitors and development workers, and they started idealizing because it's very easy to idealize the unknown, right? And then they don't understand. You see, they learn how to speak English, and that got them job. It's because the world is dominated by English-speaking people. It's, it has nothing to do with that literacy, right? So I've seen people's material progress, like you know, their life has changed. I'm so happy and proud and excited. Um, but at the same time, I also see that the profound self-hatred is that now you understand that it's only the Western ways to be emancipated from where you are, hence everything you do, everything who you are is not good enough. So I've seen this, I'm, I am going, I'm juggling, you know, again, like I said, also, this is the ideas that are very difficult to communicate with the community who understand only in terms of like, because of the poverty, right? They want immediate, emancipation from hunger, right? right? But it's it's a long journey. I, we have started the project nine years ago. I needed to go through, I mean, I think I'm very ignorant and trying to learn, but it's just the fact that, you know, it doesn't come that easy. Right, right yeah, it's yeah. trial and error. That's yeah. I mean, you're building something up, you see what works, what doesn't, and then your goals change as you become more aware yeah. of children and how they process yeah. um, moving forward. Okay, so that was an amazing conversation. I think we might have to have you on again. There's so many more questions that <laughs> yeah, I want to ask you, but good. we're going to get right into, I think, the grief now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so have you, I'm guessing from a poor country, you might have had uh, a lot of deaths around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak on any kind of loss that you've had? Or you... I would I would talk about a few losses, you know, that you know I have had um, very deep um, effect on me and how I try to mediate through that. So when I was in 10th grade, I had a nephew and mine, and he was also my classmate. He committed suicide. And losing my nephew was a huge, huge, it was a huge toll on me. Um, so the day he committed suicide, the day before, like, you know, he mentioned that, and you know, I don't want to live anymore, and, and it's becoming too difficult. So he was going through that, you know, that difficult, you know, situation. And then right after, like, you know, the next day, you know, early, and I, I woke up, you know, really early in the morning, and it was like, you know, early bird study. And I hear this, that okay, that my nephew has, you know, hanged himself. I run to see, and I see his dead body. I ran so fast, I thought that maybe he is not yet dead. Maybe we can rescue him. But by the time we reached, he was already dead. He would repeatedly come in my dream. I had conversations with him. Um, Even to the extent, I think, in the beginning, I felt that it was trauma. But later, you know, as I, you know, reflecting back that basically what it did to me. So that was one of the incidents. So um, what, kind of, what kind of dream were you talking about? Like, is it, was it a positive dream, negative dream? Um, so at times he would come and he would tell me stories, okay. stories of his own life. That, you know, this is what he wanted. So he was in love with this girl. Like he was very, very deeply in love with this girl. 
And the culture that I come from, you know, it's very, very gendered. Like, you know, it's like for mixing girls and boys, it's not really permissible. Um, so the girl that, you know, he was in love with, he's in 10th grade, you know, like, you know, he, she was forced to get married and he couldn't deal with it. So he would tell me that, you know, you know I, I want to have a you know, family with him, with her. You know, I, I want to do this, I want to do that. And, you know, to me, I, I felt that it was in the, the way I interpreted it, it was like my, my fragmented imagination that what was his desire to do, what he wanted to do. So, I mean, I would have that dream. And so that's like help maybe understand the yeah. further suffering of, of why he was Exactly. Doing so that was one part of the situation. But the other one, which was like very vivid, if I was going through any sort of difficulties, difficulties of emotional trauma or my life's regular subjectivities or I'm going through intense stress, he would come and he would talk to me about the stress, which he has no knowledge of. And it's like many, many, many years later, you know, he was dead. So to me, that is something I don't understand. Mm. I don't, and I also have dreams of people, you know, I wasn't there when they died, but I have conversations, you know, in, you know, with them in, in dreams. So for instance, the midwife uh, uh, who helped my mother to, you know, help me, you know, with my, uh, who helped my mother with labor, and labor pain, when she died, I wasn't there. Uh, but I know the incredible contribution she had in my life. I mean, when I hear the stories, you know, it swells, you know, I mean, I still get very emotional that, like, just an hour before I was born, I mean, my, we were so impoverished that we were so poor that my mother didn't even have the privacy to, like, you know, for the labor pain. So, like, one of our distant cousins, like, you know, very uh, older person, he came and just put some sort of, like, you know, uh, haystacks around place. So I was born on a piece of polythene. And I was so malnourished and my mother had you know, 11 children. So my mother couldn't breastfeed me. So that woman would take me on her lap and she'd go from door to door saying that, can you spare some milk for him? So she would go helping somebody else like in another village. And if somebody would give her a banana, I mean, I don't know how she would carry that banana for me. So that incredible act of kindness, like when she was doing it, I didn't quite understand. But as later in my life, I grew up, I, I, I struggled a lot to understand what was in her that, she, that made her do, right? So I have dreams. I mean, she died, you know, without treatment and some of the other reasons that and why I'm so devoted to my community. Because I owe, I owe my community, you know, their love, their compassion, like my, my aunts, like my, uncles who took me on my, one of the things that is in Western culture that I see that babies are carried in a basket or something, but not the case so much in our culture. Like we put our babies, you know, in our arms, like on our chest. So whenever I go to my village, when my aunts and uncles who are still alive, they say that, oh, I saw you naked the other day, right? So uh, those things incredibly makes me indebted to them that you know how, you know, they have contributed to mine. So I have dreams that when she comes in my dream and you know I have conversations with her nice conversation so it's interesting that my conversation with my nephew is one kind but this conversation is different she would always come to comfort me oh interesting she would always come to tell me it's going to be all right oh wow so i think when i was growing up i don't think i respected women as much mm. because how the culture is patriarchal but as I started, you know, thinking, reflecting back on that, the incredible contribution in my life of the women, you know, like I, I had fever a few days back and I was remembering that if I would have fever, I would have my mother, my aunt, my sister-in-laws, and, you know, they would help me, that, that incredible, delicate care and compassion. So I started thinking, so I always had her as a loving person, a comforting person, would tell me that it, things are going to be all right. So that was like two very, very vivid um, incidents. Interesting. And so for, for those dreams, is there like, what, what, where are you? Are you in Canada? Are you no. in Bangladesh? I'm What's like the scenery? Mostly in Bangladesh. Oh, I mean, this is interesting that my dreams are not in English. Oh, they're not? My, my dreams are not in English. Oh, that's interesting because you're living here. Yeah. You'd think yeah. your dreams would be in English. I think my psyche is incredibly resistant to the Canadian-ness. Like, because I'm connected to my soil, connected to my community. So in my dreams, I speak in Manga. So that's, 
And also I feel thirsty to speak in Bangla. So every opportunity that I get, that where I can speak Bangla, I'll speak Bangla. Um, so my dreams and most of the dreams, I mean, I wouldn't say all the dreams, most of the dreams that, that people who are deceased I have are in the context, you know, the, you know, where I'm from. Like, you know, there was a tree, that tree is no more there. Like, you know, we cut that tree, there was a mango tree and I would be around that tree. Mm. Um, we would go early in the morning to fetch mangoes. So those incidents, the oh, kind okay. of incidents that I would, you know, I would, I have experience. That's very interesting. And so when you see them, are they, are they looking um, as they did? At what age would you think? Was it when I, she died or was it before? Like I younger? Think, I think when, when in our culture, again, uh, we call the mother, you know, who helps you, um, helps your mother for labor pain. So when I see my other mother, you know, I see her the way I saw her. But, you know, when she died, I wasn't in the village. I already am in that village. But also, it's interesting, now that you ask that question, I feel like I almost, like, don't pay attention to the details, mm. like what clothes she's wearing mm. or... But her presence is more important to me. And one other thing is uh, the women in my life, like... Um, one of the most common practices that and I would go in and then, you know, press my head on their laps. So those sort of practices, which is very culturally what we do. Um, one other practice, you know, in our culture is that women, they, you know, dry your sweat or if you're, you know, with their uh, uh, sari. Okay. So that's one of the practices. So uh, when you eat food, when you are done, you would go and, you know, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if I can explain. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just like, it's just very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. As you, you come from a different culture and what those dreams sort of look like. And I guess, were they comforting to you? Like, did they help you move forward? Because they said they're giving you advice or comfort mm -hmm. in that time of struggle. Was mm -hmm. that something they would say helped you as you move forward? Sometimes when I would have dreams with my nephew, it would upset me. Mm. Upset, not like, I, I don't know what is the English word that would be like, it would make me more sad. Especially, I would feel like he didn't deserve to die. It was his circumstances that pushed him. So his death was a different kind because he committed suicide. Mm. So I felt that was not fair. Um, so I would feel sadder. I would feel that you know, he would be today of my age. He would probably, what would he do? But when I see the mother, my other mother in dream, that's different kind. So that would be more comforting, more soothing, more loving, more healthy. Mm. Uh, and also one thing that now that you ask, is that that intense feeling of love that I care for you? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but with my nephew, not so much. Would that be maybe? Would that be maybe because a, a younger person hasn't, in your eyes mm -hmm. and all of our eyes, mm -hmm. hasn't been able to fulfill their life, hasn't been able to do some things? I know you. Yeah, like I just did a talk at a suicide support group, and it's interesting. Like the dreams are a little different, right? In the mm -hmm. sense of what concerns what worries you have and I think that is right like your relationship and how what the death was about has a huge effect I think on what dreams you have the feeling you get when you, and you have them and what they say mm -hmm. um, and since some are comforting in the sense of you know, it helps you move forward through your grief or loss or just in the life journey other ones they say it brings up that pain and sadness that for whatever reason we weren't feeling the day before or something mm -hmm. and it makes it more real Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have said, like, don't like those dreams because it was just a reminder of what's not around and mm -hmm. all the circumstances surrounding why the individual died. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot, but you had a lot of loss. And, you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm saddened to hear the amount of suffering that you, you had in your life growing up and you continue to have based on your understanding of your, your culture and your world in, in Bangladesh, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's something that I say, like, I haven't seen that. I haven't got to travel to those places to actually feel what it feels like to be with that much suffering. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my thing with suffering is with people who have lost someone, someone mm -hmm. that they love. Mm -hmm. And that's one person, you know, like, um, but this is like a nation, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. whole thing. And so um, thank you for, I think, being on here. Mm -hmm. and sharing the story. I said, we'll probably have you on again because you have so much to share. <laughs> and you probably have more lost stories and understanding of your own grief journey that you might want to touch on. Um, but like, you're an amazing individual, I got to say, right? In the sense of what you've come from and how much love you still have in your heart. Like, I would think if I grew up in that time, in that sort of time frame, that my heart would be closed because there's so much suffering and how do you hold to that? But I said, like, you're trying to sort of find your way to hold that suffering 
and to continue to love yourself and the people you're with, um, and but not forget about all what, what your goal is. I, I think one of the things that has, although, I mean, um, the Persian poet Rumi, he talks about that suffering is a blessing in disguise. Mm. So I think what I have gone through, although it was difficult for me, but I think it gave me an incredibly rich veneer to understand what this human suffering is like. I don't think I would understand what a homeless person, even here in Canada, when I see a homeless person, um, I don't think I would understand if I was not, I didn't have the experience of starving myself. Um, if my dignities were not robbed of me so many times in growing up, uh, I don't think I would understand. So what it does to me is that I, only understand that perhaps a little better that what I wouldn't do to the other person. Um, so I don't think it only opens my heart further that, yeah, but it's again, like I said, it's also the perspective and also my training and my deep interest in Eastern philosophy, Vedic philosophy, um, Buddhism, I think also helps me to understand my subjectivity better. I think I would probably have been a different person if I was entirely born and brought up in Canada uh, with Western epistemology. You might be a hockey player, right? <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. And again, like Josh said, we could do this all day and we'll definitely do it again for sure. Um, the work you're doing is very important, especially being Bang Bangladeshi yourself. Mm -hmm. And like you said, changing the way literacy is interpreted and uh, taught, mm -hmm. uh, that's very important as well. Mm -hmm. um, so what people can do, can they donate to your foundation? Yes. If they go to the website, um, as you have mentioned, you know, there is a donation button. You know, they can uh, donate money if they want to. Um, yeah. But also, I, I, I think um, it would be more important when they get donate, not just like giving money, but actually taking an active interest in the lives of those kids. Like, mm -hmm. okay. Um, because sometimes giving money can give you the immediate relief that you, you know, but not taking an active interest, it's sort of could be problematic. Mm -hmm. So I personally would appreciate people if they would take active interest into their lives, you know, be it donating money or like, you know, trying to know what's happening, you know, trying to do something which is meaningful and long lasting. Not one of those events like one off, like you go to one of the African countries for you know 15 days and you take a picture with a you know 100 black child you know, for your social media. And, and that you know we can be delusions sometimes, right? Absolutely. Because we're thinking, well, why aren't they leaving their circumstances? Ah, the water's rising. Why don't they just leave? Mm -hmm. But there's a whole series of yeah. factors behind that. Anyways, oh, would you be able to say grief dreams in uh, Bangladeshi? Is it? Bangla? Bangla, yeah. Bangla. Obviously. Can you say uh, grief dreams? Grief in, in Bangla? Yes. Um, grief in Bangla means shok. Shok. Which would be like for you S-H-O-K, shok. Uh, dream means uh, shopno. Like how it be saying probably sapna. So oh, yeah. The same, okay. Like same same Yeah. Yeah. So shok, shopno. Shok, shopno. Yeah. So grief means shok. Oh, and beautiful. Yeah, shop shop no. You're saying how like you you get joy when you get to speak. Yeah. Bangladesh. Yeah. Or bang. Bang. Bangla. 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 You learn something new every day. I didn't. I am. I am. And so this is great. So you want to sign off with the? I get. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for joining Shok Shopna podcast. Shok Shopna podcast with Sean and Josh. Um, so you can uh, you can get to um, throws at wefoundationbd.org. Sorry, www.wefoundationbd.org. And again, you can donate uh, and volunteer mm -hmm. yeah. soon as well. Once again, please check out our newsletter at griefdreams.ca. Uh, you can find our uh, podcast, Grief Dream Podcast, at podbeam.com. It's also available on uh, iTunes right now, so you can uh, find it on with your iPhone. Uh, again, Grief Dreams Podcast, and as well, if you have any questions, information, comments, you can hit us up at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you, Frills.
beginning. beginning.